So going into the round table ahead of that poll, I think, you know, I've said it before on the call, but it really is such a privilege to have the three of you here just talking openly and honestly with us and, and, and bringing this conversation to the floor. So I'm going to kick off the round table by just asking each of you, starting with you, Dee, um, what do you do to invest in, in your mental health? And then Johnny and Ronan, if you can pick up after Dee, that'll be great. Uh, thanks, Mandy. Um, well, I'm a bit of a social animal, so I like to kind of, I, I found code very difficult being kind of locked away for, for years and years, it felt like. Um, so I think connecting with others for me is a really key protector for my mental health. So I like to kind of get out and, you know, I find laughter and conversation and sharing stories and problems with friends and families really gives me that kind of boost to my mental health. Um, and then on the flip side, it's kind of knowing when to sort of disconnect either from work or from friends when the, the social uh, battery might be a bit depleted. So taking time out in nature or just getting stuck into a good book. Those are the kind of things that I, li that I like to do. Thanks. How about you, Johnny? Thanks. Um, I often just talk about trying to get the fundamentals right in terms of eat well, sleep well and drink well. So not too much alcohol, try and drink water, try and eat well, etc. And then exercise in whatever way you're suitable for your body. For me, I try and go on the bike once a week and my biggest boost to my mental health is actually playing tennis. I'm, I'm not very good, by the way, but when I'm on that court, I just have this like moment of mindfulness and that's what I found. And if I just play tennis, it sets me up for the week. And then three other things I also focus on is kindness. Just, I honestly find it if you focus on trying to be kind, it really does help your well-being and also helps the other person as well, which, which is great. Um, and Dee touched on nature as, as well. And the last one is trying to show as much empathy for others. Again, really helps me and my mental health. Thanks for sharing, Johnny. How about you, Ronan? So I maybe blend some of those. Um, uh, I made the decision at the beginning of the pandemic. I've been blessed with a pretty robust mental health all my life and a natural extrovert uh, character, which might surprise some people. But um, I took the decision at the beginning of the pandemic to proactively reach out uh, and started in the first weeks of the pandemic with five a week and then progressively uh, moved on from there just in the idea that for a lot of people, uh, the thing that was missing in the pandemic was hello, was hi, was so I just reached out to a lot of people that I hadn't been in touch with on a regular basis, plus some people in the work environment who, because of the change in circumstances, I wouldn't. And what I would say, and this is striking the balance between we all have something to input, because the beauty of life, society, everything is, is we're all different. And actually, very often, what we have is what other people need. That's the beauty of it. And so that opportunity to reach out, and in, in, in my experience, about 99% of the reach outs, and some of them were by text, some of them were a call, some of them were an email, different, different things. About 99% of them were responded to, and about 95% were responded to within a really short space of time. People needed. And again, not to make a point for the sake of it is, but as somebody who is, believes in brand and marketing, the greatest failure of the pandemic was the misbranding of, um, uh, social distancing we didn't need social distancing we needed physical distancing while maintaining social intimacy 
And we actually forced ourselves into a situation where we created greater separation in a societal mental way than actually was, was necessary. And we're paying the price for that now. The second thing uh, for me that I uh, enjoy doing is I'm uh, learning a little bit around uh, yoga and Pilates and things like that. And actually, um, the uh, former CEO at, uh, at Verizon Media, Yahoo Guru Garapan, started to have those mental well-being days um, every Friday and brought in various yogi and others to help us to start to think about and just to familiarize ourselves with different mindset approaches that perhaps some of us were less uh, less used to. And, and a bit like Johnny, I find sport or activity or other things to be an escape, not because I'm good at it, but because I, I get healthily distracted uh, by it. Thank you all for sharing. I'm going to go back to the poll now because the results are in. And I'll tell you now, 36% of people said that their companies do take mental well-being seriously. But the rest all said either no or only at a superficial level. And that's still a giant gap to be filled. So my question um, to you guys is really how do we also start moving the needle on, on company culture, how they see mental health um, and looping in Johnny's point earlier, you know, the, the more data we have and the more we can actually pull on the purse strings, that's great. But for now, we actually need to change the mindset from a checkbox approach to actually having solutions that work for our employees. Um, Johnny, I'm going to start with you for, for any tips you may have. Yeah, thanks, Mandy. Um, I could go in different directions, but maybe I'll just go with something practical. When I work with organizations on creating mental well-being and wider well-being programs we always think about how can you try and shift the culture and how can you gain momentum and create a movement and I think we try and do that with three key components when trying to shift the culture and this is also for example the route that we're taking at, at Starbucks we have an amazing culture and an amazing group of people and the first is making sure that any program is grassroots it's making sure that those individuals that want to drive the cultural change, you give the space and the ability to do that. And when you do that, honestly, the amount of people that put themselves forward and you harness that energy, it's brilliant. The second thing is making sure that you include all functions in any cultural change. And because it's if you want to drive, let's say, change in a well-being program and well-being more broadly, they need to have people in different parts of the business and functions all working towards it. Otherwise, you might not get things done. I think the third thing is making sure that you have the right advocacy and buy-in across all levels, right from the tone from the top. And it sounded like, for example, Ronan there's got a great tone from the top, um, where he is, for example. But having that tone from the top and giving you permission and making you feel safe to be able to change the culture is important. But it's not just the top, it's right the way through the organization. Thanks Andy, so can I just build on one of Johnny's comments? Because I think it's so important. Um, if you were to take the survey that we just did, um, and I know it's not a statistical survey, but one of the insights in surveys is that when people are asked about the company, um, their uh, opinion is formed in most parts by the person that they report to, because that person represents the company. And I think what's really important, and it was to Johnny's point of tone from the top gives permission but the delivery of the space that people need is determined by their supervisor, by their manager. And that's where the criticality is, because 
it's a bit like, forgive me, but um, when we all started to uh, look at things like unconscious bias, we started in boardrooms and other things, and don't get me wrong, great. But um, we started at the top and said, oh, now we understand and we'll change our language, et cetera, et cetera. The reality of whether the change happens is the one-to-one relationship you have when you walk into the retail store. That's the key. And that's where what we need to do is we need to ensure that we have a common narrative that is clear from the top down and use that narrative to create context. And this isn't just about mental health. This, if I may be so bold, is a, a replicable formula for successful and effective communications in organizations is if you have a common context where people understand what the big ambition of the organization is, but also understand how it affects them at their level in the organization, what you actually do is give them confidence to exercise their judgment. And we know that the best outcome for any challenge in a business is one that's taken and given effect to closest to the situation at hand, whether that be an employee situation or whether that be a customer situation. So what I would say is the challenge that we have is if there's one store in a thousand, if there is one warehouse in a hundred, if there's one you know, uh, employee canteen in 50 where this doesn't exist, well, then it doesn't exist for those employees. And that's why we just have to be relentless on making sure that every part of the organization understands the challenge and is given the support necessary to give those uh, leaders, those supervisors, managers, the confidence to have the courageous conversation, to put an arm around somebody and say, is everything okay? Thank you, Ronan. So true. Um, so we've spoken, I guess, about the support from within the organizations now. And Dee, I'm, I'm going to cross over to you and maybe put you on the spot a bit to ask you really if you had a call to action for, for member institutes and how they can better support their members from a mental health perspective, what would it be? Yeah, great, great question. Um, I think, I mean, as we've heard here today, lots of uh, fantastic sort of insights and, and all the rest of it. And we know from the research that Basically, the mental health, um, it's affecting everybody. So this is not something that's kind of siloed over in a corner. So I think it's the majority of um, the Institute staff and it's the majority of their members and their students that are actually suffering and, and maybe actually, you know, having these challenges. And I think with this in mind, our institutes really need to kind of join the charge and, and um, challenge the stigma that we've been talking about here today. Um, and become those adv- um, advocates in raising awareness around the mental health issues. I think the key thing here is about education and training their staff for those soft skills that um, Ronan was alluding to there to understand the issues surrounding mental health. So it's really, really important. The education is a key component of this. And then provide a wellbeing section, really practical, providing a wellbeing section on their websites with signposting to the supports that are available in their respective regions. You know, this could be actually the the first port of call that somebody that's actually um, struggling, they might go to their institute looking for this information. And then just lastly, as the chair of the, um, the, the mental fitness task force, come and support us, you know, maybe make sure that there's one of your um, representatives around the table. And this is where we're sharing best practice, what's going on in the regions. We learn a ton from each other and we support each other in this, you know, kind of initiative. So it's really, really a, a great place to be for, for people to, to come forward. So, yeah, thanks. Thanks, Dee. I agree. That task force really is incredible. Um, And thank you so much for forming it and just charging the lead within the institutes. We are going to head over to questions from our audience in a moment, just before we do for the last 
12 minutes. We'll have 12 minutes to go through audience questions, but we want to bring up a word cloud where you actually are going to share with us activities that you're doing currently um, to invest in your mental health. So please click on a couple of the words that resonate with you. And I'm going to start looking at some of these audience questions in the interim. We have lots of questions coming through. I can tell you there have been over 100 submitted between the pre-show and through the chat function. So I'm going to try to get a broad spread, I guess, globally and, and pick some out. Um, I just want to check speakers. Are you ready? Are you ready to go? These are the hot seat questions. <laughs> okay, so we have a question coming through from Rensi in Indonesia asking how to maintain mental health in a stressful work environment. And I'm going to pull through another one coming through from Nigeria um, asking how can chartered accountants maintain a work-life balance considering the digital age we live in and operate in a, in a coupled with the ever increasing demand from work. So I think these kind of go together, you know, in high pressure environments and at the same time we're in environments that just don't switch off. So Johnny, I'm going to flip to you to, to kick us off with your thoughts on this one. Thank you, Mandy. And thank you, Renzi. And I didn't catch the, the other person's name, but, but thank you very much for the, uh, for the questions. High pressure, um, Environment. Do you know, actually, just touching on what Ronan said earlier about line managers, and I think that's fundamentally important. And I just want to bring that in because there has been some research done for accountants and finance professionals specifically, and the vast majority, over 70-80% of participants say that work is a key determinant of our mental health. Also, about 80% would say that they have been stressed at work. So we know that work is a key determinant of our mental health. We all basically say the work has stressed us the last 12 months. But the thing that really upsets me, the vast majority, over 70% of people say they will not talk to their line manager because they think it will be career limiting. So we know we're stressed at work, but we don't talk to a line manager because we think it's career limiting. And that's why we really have to get into that line manager population, which is fundamentally important. And the reason why I mention it is I think it's conversations with your line manager, which, really, which is really important to get to a good place so you have a good working environment that you can thrive. And one of the things, for example, that, that we're doing in some of the teams that I work with is having well-being objectives. So alongside your, your performance objectives, if you like, you have well-being objectives. And sometimes we talk about care, caring for yourself. So where are the areas where you can take time to show compassion? Where's the areas that you can be really active? Where's the areas where you want to build on your relationships? And where's the areas that you want to, you know, do exercise? I think having those conversations about care or whatever works for you with your line manager in your well-being objectives and talking about your non-negotiables. You know, for me, for example, I've got a, a new baby. You know, I want to be the best story, you know, bedtime story reader I can be. I talk about it with my line manager. That's what I want to do. That's what's going to help my well-being. That's my non-negotiable. I want to do that. And I think that's important. So having that really open dialogue with your line manager to the extent you can, I totally get all cultures are different and that's not possible. But I think having the conversations, thinking about well-being and taking ownership and accountability, I think is, is important. Thank you, Johnny. Uh, I love that. And I have no doubt that you are the best storyteller. So 
I'm sure your little one's very lucky to have you. Um, the next question actually links to parenting as well. And Ronan, since I know that you have a daughter in her 20s, I'm going to send this one your way. Um, and I don't think it's an easy one, but Paul from the UK has asked, are there any thoughts on being present for family, your partner and your children while pushing forward in a high pressure environment and maintaining your mental health? Does one have to come at the sacrifice of another? So, Mandy, thanks for the question. I have very strong uh, views on this, and these aren't views that were formed over the uh, over the pandemic. Uh, I think the nature of uh, work and the nature of careers, uh, in my view, has to be founded on uh, mutual respect and mutual understanding. And if you genuinely believe that a workplace should be an inviting place in which somebody can bring their best self every single day, that person, by definition, is a, a son, a daughter, a mother, a brother, a sister, an aunt. Um, and they don't park that uh, in reception when they arrive into the building. And I've always believed, and I've had the privilege of being a senior executive in my later years, but everybody starts at the beginning and starts their career somewhere. In my case, flipping hamburgers in McDonald's in Dublin. But the point is that the authenticity of bringing yourself at every level I actually believe affords you the opportunity to not make false compromises. There will always be a question that says, but we still need two people to stay late tonight. And therefore we have to have a conversation about who that might be. I'm not naive, but an awful lot of people in exactly the same way as we had the conversation about mental health earlier default to, I won't say, I won't ask, and therefore I'll blame the situation. And um, my daughter, uh, happened to be an exceptionally talented uh, field hockey player. And I only missed one competitive game in eight years. She can tell you exactly which game it was on what day. And I still feel guilty about that because that was on a Sunday. But guess what? I showed up for the other 300. So I would say, don't make a crisis when there isn't one. Be open, be willing to have a conversation. And if I may be so bold, I'll take it back to the very beginning when we introduced ourselves. Uh, Johnny showed vulnerability and authenticity as a leader. And I bet you that he went up in people's estimation as a result. In my experience, vulnerability and authenticity are strengths, not weaknesses. And there is no authenticity without vulnerability. Now, it's easy for some of us who are a little older and more seasoned perhaps to say it, but it's true. And I've never found authenticity or vulnerability rejected in any environment I've been in. So ask the question, celebrate the fact that you're a new parent, that you have a sports day, that you have a something else and be planful and purposeful. And if you are, a lot of these realities may actually work out just the way you want them. Thank you, Ronan. As a parent of two young kids myself, that is very inspiring to hear. So thank you so much for sharing. Um, Dee, I'm going to direct the next question to you because I know that a lot of your work has really revolved around understanding anxiety in the, in the workplace in specific. So we have a question coming from somebody in Zambia who has asked, how do I know as a finance professional whether I am mentally stressed? How much time should I take for myself and how do I create the space for it? Well, that's a, a really um, vulnerable question. So um, we're talking about vulnerability here. So thank you for that. I don't have the name, but um, and it's actually a very common question. This is something that comes up time and time again. You know, how do I know that I'm stressed? You know, um, 
So look, you know, um, mental stress and anxiety are very hard to identify in the moment that you're experiencing it. So the main reason for this is we all know when you're anxious, your body responds automatically. So you're producing the stress hormones, cortisol and adrenaline, and you have an, an amygdala takeover. So this is your primitive brain, not your thinking brain. So you're not really thinking very rationally. So ultimately, you're kind of running on autopilot um, through a, a stressful situation or a stressful time. And like, that's actually okay if it just happens every once in a while. So I think the issue is really when the stress becomes like a daily occurrence, like a sort of a drip drip uh, situation. And then you have this kind of flood of, of stress hormones that can obviously take its toll. So then, you know, the kind of the net result there is that you're going to lose concentration and motivation. You're going to feel fatigued and ultimately, you know, it's going to start affecting your physical health as well. So this could be going on for this person. Um, so obviously, you know, how do we kind of, you know, tackle this that goes without saying? But the best way really is to kind of remove the stressors. So we have had all of us lots of macro stressors, you know, with the pandemic and wars and all sorts of, you know, climate crises going around on around the world. But, you know, I think if you can take it down to an individual level, um, looking sort of, you know, we're all kind of um, in a kind of a finance frame of mind, doing an audit on your own daily workload and your routines and those relationships that you have in your life. Um, it's really important. It's a really great first step. So you're going to identify maybe the big stressors that are going on for you and take action. So we're talking here today about speaking up, maybe speaking to a colleague or your line manager, of course, if you're brave enough, um, and hopefully you are, or it could be like just a family member. So you're kind of taking back control of a situation that you may feel very overwhelmed in. So um, this is when you're going to start seeing some changes. So I hope that's answered a little bit of that person's question. So thank you. Thanks so much, Dee. We only have three minutes left, so I'm going to pull out one question, which I think is, is pretty important. It's coming from Sarani in, in Sri Lanka, who has asked what best practices do you have to keep track of your mental health. And I think that's a big thing because physical health, we know we can get on the scale, we can measure inches, but, but mental health can be much more complicated. So I'm going to ask each of you to just share your, your quick tip on, on measuring mental health in your own life. Dee, you can kick us off first. Um, I think the quickest one, the one that everyone can take away with is just disconnect from your device, you know, way more than, than you want to. And, and, and I think we're all sort of tethered to our devices so often. So just, you know, put the device away, disconnect, get out in nature, as we're all saying, you know, go and read that book, talk to that friend, you know, do a bit of socializing or just, you know, a bit of self-care. So, yeah, definitely number one tip for me. How about you, Johnny? Yeah, I would go down a similar to D. I think it's working out what works for you and then you track it. So for me personally, getting out walking is my thing. I take a lot of walking meetings and I'm very deliberate. And I say to people, can I do this at a walking meeting? And I try and empower other people as well to then if they want to go and get their walking shoes on, we could do a walking meeting. Um, so actually for me, a track of my mental health is how many steps have I done? And if I get over 15,000 steps, chances are my mental health is going to be in a decent place that day. Love that, Johnny. Thank you. Ronan, what's your tip for the day? Uh, well, I'm, I'm definitely with Johnny, having done walking meetings earlier today, uh, very much uh, that as both a physical uh, well-being, but also the external stimulus is big. The other thing that I personally love to do, and I'm lucky enough I have a bit more time in my uh, life these days, is um, I get energized and um, regenerated by, by reaching out. So I'm doing a lot more coaching and mentoring. Uh, and I actually um, 
believe I get as much out as the uh, mentee does as well, because it helps me to refresh for myself what are the things that are good and should be doing, and actually is as good a lesson for me and a refresher for me as it hopefully is for the other person. And uh, I, I hugely enjoy it. I'm, I measure success by by reference to whether or not I made a difference, and that helps me to reset my energy stores, uh, even if it's a small difference. Every every difference counts. I couldn't agree more. Thank you so much, Ronan. And thank you to all of you for sharing your time and your thoughts today. To our audience, we hope that this discussion has really made you more comfortable to start the conversation about your mental health and the mental health of your, of your peers and your friends around you, and that you walk away with some useful tips and practical tips to start your journey. We hope that we'll see you again in July for the next episode in the Difference Makers Discuss series. We'll be, tr we'll be talking about trust and evolution. So please take a look out for more details and we'll see you then.